You are now listening to the people of digital marketing with your host, me, Kenny Soto. This podcast is your source for marketing strategies, tactics, and most importantly, career advice from the best digital marketers in the world. From B2B to B2C, startups to Fortune 500 companies, and everything in between, I interview experts in marketing so that we can grow to become better marketers together. If you're a marketer who wants a leg up in this space, well, guess what? You're in the right place. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today's guest is Dan McGaw. Dan is an award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, and the CEO of two companies, McGaw.io, an analytics and marketing technology consultancy, and a SaaS platform called UTM.io. In addition, Dan also finds time to be a 500 Startups mentor and has previously started the first business accelerator out of Orlando, Florida. He's also a thought leader in the MarTech world and a CXL instructor on the topic. Having spoken at leading marketing conferences and online events, his expertise lies in helping businesses extract and interpret the right data to grow their revenue exponentially. We get really, really deep in the weeds here when it comes to tech and MarTech specifically. So I think you'll like this episode because although I've brushed upon the topic with other guests in the past, Dan is truly one of the leading experts in terms of MarTech tools. So I hope you like this episode. Now, let's tune in. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you today? I'm doing very, very well. I'm going to start this episode off like I do with every other episode by asking you a very straightforward question so that the listeners can learn more about you as a marketer. And that question is, how did you get into digital marketing? Yeah, fascinating question. You know, I accidentally fell into marketing uh, when I was really, really young. So I had no idea what was going on. You know, I think I was like nine years old uh, and I received a promo pack in the mail from some boy band. And if I recall, they were like Black Book or Black Label or I can't remember what it was. But either way, this white boy band from I can't remember where, like Florida or something. I lived in the ga- the ghetto in Pittsburgh and they needed street crews and promoters to promote this boy band. And I was like, sweet, I'll do it. Like, it's cool. I'll get free stuff. And, you know, that was my first experience actually doing marketing, which, you know, when you're promoting a white boy band in a very, very gangster ghetto, it doesn't work very well. It wasn't very well received. So I also learned failure very quickly through marketing through that experience as well. But that's honestly how I got into marketing. That was my first introduction to it. Are there any connections to that first experience that you can see in what you would do today? Absolutely. I mean, the biggest, the big thing that I would just say is that, um, I'm not afraid to try something new and I'm not afraid to fail at something. So I think there's a big connection between the fact that I actually had to like go outside, put posters on buildings uh, and like figure out how to promote these guys and like get people to their concert, which was going to happen in Pittsburgh. You know, I learned really, really quickly that like it's okay to fail. Right. And it's okay to like actually go outside to do marketing, Um, because I think one of the things that everybody thinks about today, everybody's like scared to talk to customers or scared to um, actually do marketing where there's people around. They always want to hide behind PPC or hide behind social media. They never actually see marketing 
face to face. Um, so I think there was a lot of things that I took away from that experience, uh, being willing to fail, but also having to like go do marketing in real life. Um, I still do marketing in real life now. So uh, I definitely think there were some correlations between what I did then and some of the learnings that I have now. Couldn't someone argue that what you were really doing was sales? How would you tackle that claim? Well, I mean, when you sales is when I'm communicating with another person, typically one on one and building Mm -hmm. a relationship and building rapport with them. In this case, I was not talking to individual people, right? I was putting posters and gluing them to the side of buildings or uh, telephone poles or anything like that. So I wasn't actually talking to people and doing sales necessarily, right? My job was to distribute flyers and distribute posters and basically do guerrilla marketing, right? Not necessarily the best marketing. But when you have to glue a poster to a telephone pole or staple a poster to a telephone pole, and there is people standing there watching you do this, you know, that's a certain amount of fear or anxiety you have to overcome. Um, And that's what I mean by like getting over like real world stuff. Because when you build a PPC ad, right, nobody's watching you. Nobody's judging you. But when you're hanging a poster or duct taping a poster to a telephone pole at the bus stop where there's 30 people waiting for the bus and they're staring at you, that's a totally different feeling. And no, that's not sales at all. Now, if I was going to each one of those people standing at that bus stop and then trying to convince them to buy our product or to buy a ticket, that'd be different. I was just handing them flyers and then walking away. That's that's totally different. Got it. Now, how would you describe your current job? Yeah, I mean, as I'm the CEO of two separate companies. So I'm the CEO of a company called Maga.io. We're a marketing technology, marketing analytics agency, work with a lot of uh, cool brands to ultimately figure out their customer data, build their customer data infrastructure, um, learn their customer journey, things like that. Um, I'm also the CMO or excuse me, CEO of another company called UTM.io, which is a campaign link management platform. So if you've ever built campaign links with UTMs, we are the platform that everybody uses to do that effectively and efficiently. So my my role now as a CEO, one, I'm heavily still involved with marketing on both companies. Um, That being said, I do it more from an executive perspective where I don't really do the work anymore. I'm delegating to a team. I'm providing them coaching, feedback, and helping them grow in their career. So I would say my position now is more about helping other marketers be successful compared to actually doing the marketing. Don't get me wrong. I still have a very, very opinionated point of view on marketing. So I'm still doing the marketing in some capacity because I'm leading it, but I just don't, I'm more about training and coaching now than uh, I was before. Just for a little bit more context, can you describe the ideal client slash customer for each respective business? Yeah. So from a God.io, we typically are targeting businesses between $20 million and $200 million in revenue. They're spending more than $10,000 a month on uh, their technology stack. So a combination of their marketing tools, sales tools, even customer success. Um, that's a, an easy one from a God.io. And we're typically focused on selling to the CEO, the CIO, or CMO, and also the VP of marketing. Um, and that's really where we focus our effort. And then there's certain trigger points that we notice when we want to sell somebody. Um, if somebody is new, so if they just hired a new CEO, CMO, CIO, or uh, VP of marketing, that's a really good point for us to go in and contact them and then try to do a diagnostics. That's a good trigger point. And another good trigger point for when we want to talk with somebody is when they recently added um, a new technology to their website, which is in our preferred tools offering. Um, so that's kind of our, our typical ICP. We have no preference towards B2B or B2C. Um, we are definitely agnostic to that. When we think about our, our agency and our consulting company, I mean, we have about 20 clients right now. 
And we, we typically, I mean, a client is typically paying us between 10 and $30,000 a month um, over a six month to 12 month period. So definitely you've got to have a pretty big budget to be able to, to do that. So uh, definitely that mid-market is a big focus for us. We don't discriminate against enterprise, but you know, General Electric doesn't like to pay their bills on time. They like to pay them four months late, um, if ever. So we tend, and no picking on General Electric, I'm just saying big companies in general, uh, they typically want uh, to pay really, really late. Uh, and so we, we focus on those companies that will pay quickly. Um, and then with UTM.io, um, typically we are targeting director of analytics, marketing operations managers um, at big companies. So UTM.io focuses, we have a free product, anybody could use it. So any marketer could use our product. But for our true sales, we are most focused on selling to the enterprise. So um, large multinational or multi-region corporations, um, many of them are doing many more, many billions of dollars in revenue. But um, our ideal customer is a multi-location uh, business that has a large marketing team that may be in five different countries uh, and they need to get their campaign links in order, but heavily targeted after that director of analytics, director of marketing operations, revenue operations, anybody who cares about the campaign data coming to them and being able to make sure those campaign data is correct uh, is our ICP over there. I've always been fascinated with the idea of lead qualification, how do you qualify your leads before even talking about a sale or even like scheduling a sales call with them? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely certain criteria. Like if if you, you know, for Maga.io, when we definitely think about doing a sales call or anything like that, you've got to fit that ICP. You've got to be above that 20 million threshold in most cases. Don't get me wrong. We'll talk to people below that threshold, um, but very quickly disqualify them um, because they just don't have the budget for it. Um, even when you come to our website and you fill out like our free consultation form, on the free consultation form, there's a specific thing in there that says, I can afford um, this amount of money per month as a retainer. And it starts at $5,000 and it goes up. So it's like five to 10,000, 10 to 20,000. That simple button of them having to say, I can afford this much, uh, disqualifies anybody who can't afford $5,000 a month or more uh, because people just won't fill out the form because they realize like that's our kind of our entry point. Uh, but a lot of the disqualifications are first around, do they have enough money? So are they 20 million in revenue or higher? We'll then move off of that. The second criteria for disqualification for us is, are we capable of doing the work, which is typically a yes. And then the third criteria is, are they going to be fun to work with? Um, we, we are a service-based business where we are spending considerable amount of time with our customers, multiple hours a week uh, uh, doing different things. So if they suck to work with, we don't want to work with them. So that's a disqualifier for us. But at the end of the day, you know, we don't have the same disqualification flow like I would have had when I worked at Kissmetrics. Like when I was the head of marketing at Kissmetrics, one of the pioneers in marketing analytics, um, we had a much, much more robust um, disqualification flow because at Kissmetrics, we were doing four to 5,000 leads a month. Um, while at Maga.io, I mean, we're doing 150 to 200 leads a month with maybe only five of those per month being like, hey, I want to buy your services. Um, so and we're pretty good at targeting or attracting the right target buyer. So uh, we don't have a ton of disqualification. I have a bias, and I'm just being honest here, against service-based businesses because they're hard to scale. So my next mm -hmm. question would be, are you using any automation to help with scaling your business? Absolutely. I mean, our whole 
premise as a company is is automation in general, right? Like that's what we're most well known for is building automated stacks. There's a ton of automation in our business that helps us run uh, things. We have a lot of integrations between Salesforce and Trello and Harvest and all that stuff, even Gmail and our calendars with Trello. Um, we also have a proprietary note-taking tool, which we we customize and built ourselves, which integrates in with Trello. So um, when our when we're in our client meetings, we have a, a proprietary tool we take the notes with, and then that integrates to make things a little bit easier. Um, so there's definitely a lot of automation in there. But at the end of the day, um, and I, I can speak to this because I, I come from SaaS, uh, and I also own a SaaS business. UTM is a SaaS company. You know, the consulting business is definitely much much harder to scale. Uh, it's much, much harder to build. It's much more difficult. Unfortunately, because I am the jackass that I am, I always choose the hardest path. And then I always am focused on proving naysayers wrong. Um, and what we have built over the last seven years, I will be very clear, is not... Um, if I was focused 100% of my time on UTM.io, which is our SaaS product, we would definitely be doing a lot more uh, revenue, right? And we'd be having a, a very, very different business. Um, that being said, the goal of Magal.io, which is the consulting company, has our goal is to become the next Deloitte, right? We are focused on going competing with Deloitte, PwC, Gartner, all the big, all the big advisory and consulting firms. But our strategy to get there has less to do with just the consulting. It has a lot to do with the software that we build. So um, UTM.io is just one of multiple products we have. Uh, we own another four Chrome extensions that are used by thousands and thousands of users. Um, we have a uh, online stack builder, which is a product we're building. We have our proprietary note tool, which is about to be spun out and be another company. So with consulting, the whole goal is to try to better understand the hardest problems companies are facing. And then we'll build software to solve that problem. Um, and then we allow that software to be where a good amount of our revenue will come from. So um, it is definitely a two-sided company because we're constantly building product uh, at Magal.io. And then we're rolling that product out for SaaS. So while somebody may be focused on one SaaS company, I'm focused on four of our internal SaaS products. Um, so we're doing both. But I will always say that uh, consulting is much, much, much harder than SaaS. Um, and you're correct. It's extremely difficult to scale. And we understand that Magal.io is a 20-year, 30-year journey. This isn't something that... This isn't Uber, right? You don't become a $100 billion company in 10 years. Um, in our industry as consulting, it, it takes you 30, 50 years to get there. Um, but I'm very interested in, in building that. It, it does seem like you're also building an interesting moat over time. And you mentioned four Chrome extensions. I recently learned that a good tactic for getting easy lead generation is to either acquire a Chrome extension or to create one. Can you give more context on the four Chrome extensions that you were talking about? Yeah, the, the first Chrome extension we built was called, our company used to be called FN Amazing, right? So Magal.io rebranded in May of 2020. Um, we used to be called FN Amazing. And that was, you know, people love the name, but when you're working with a multi-billion dollar corporation, they don't like the name, right? Um, so we changed the company name, but we used to have what was known as the effing amazing UTM builder. And that was just a simple Chrome extension that people could download uh, and put in their browser that would allow them to build UTM codes. And that that product is now UTM.io. Um, that UTM builder uh, was free. People would give us an email address and we would capture three to 500 leads every single month. Uh, we built a really, really successful flow around it. And, you know, that really helped uh, drive a lot of attention for our brand. 
Um, so when you think about building a moat as an agency, one of our moats and our real differentiator is the fact that we actually build these products. So um, the tools do become part of our moat because they enable us to defend ourselves and be different than other people. So F an amazing UTM builder was one of them. We have an AB testing calculator. Um, so when in AB testing, you have to make sure that you have statistical significance. So we have a Chrome extension, which enables you, uh, and this is an internal tool that we use, but it's also offered for free. If you're just a Google um, AB testing calculator, Chrome extension, and look for the one that says F and amazing on it, that's ours. Um, that probably drives maybe 30 leads a month, but they're highly qualified leads for us. It's a lot of people. We actually look at that one for recruiting. A lot of people that use that tool, we're trying to actually recruit to come work here. Um, we have another Chrome extension, which is called Overdue Trello Cards First. Um, that Chrome extension is all about in Trello, when you look at your card view, for some reason, overdue cards get pushed to the bottom. And we're like, overdue cards should be at the top. Um, so that has a few thousand users on that Chrome extension. Uh, again, it's just an internal tool, but people uh, use it. Um, it runs in the background. Um, we have a analytics debugger tool, which is internal. You can't find that one in the store. That's only internal right now. Um, we just launched a Google Drive search Chrome extension, which enables you to go to your Omnibar in Google and type in the word drive and then hit space. And then whatever your search query is, it will search your Google Drive. Um, that is a, a proprietary tool that we have. Um, we had to have that one because uh, we can't have, there's other tools that do that, uh, that are somewhat effective, but they're insecure. Ours is very secure, so we have that one. We just launched a Trello search Chrome extension, and then we're actually about to build, um, I think three or four more Trello extensions um, to enable our team to be able to do more stuff. So, you know, Chrome extensions are really, really easy to build in many cases. Um, so we build a lot of them. Um, so we have many Chrome extensions. We're going to keep building them. But we also have, I think, three other products that are currently not Chrome extensions, but they're being baked into uh, our website and stuff that we're still building. So we're always building something. Why is building a MarTech stack so difficult? And taking also a step back a little, can you describe to the listeners the concept of a tech stack in general? Yeah, you know, I mean, the I think this is a term that's kind of evolving over time. You know, people are familiar with MarTech and marketing technology, but I think, excuse me, at the end of the day, sales tech is huge. Customer success tech is, excuse me, customer success tech is huge. There's a lot of different like tools that we're using out there. So when you start to integrate all these tools together, it builds your tech stack, right? So an easy one to talk about, right, is you got Google Analytics on your website. You've got WordPress. Okay, those two put together obviously is the start of your stack. Um, you then have, let's say, Marketo, and Marketo is integrated in with Salesforce, right? And then Salesforce is integrated in with Insight Squared. So all these tools combined together build your tech stack. And there's many different layers of your tech stack, whether that be the marketing stack, the sales stack, uh, the DevOps stack. There's just a lot of tools which are used in your tech stack. So when you think about building a tech stack, though, it's all about integrating those tools together to make life effective. Um, and to make it so that you can have good data infrastructure. Um, at the end of the day, what we try to teach our clients and other companies is that your business is a platform. Your business is software, whether you like it or not. Whether your business is in a software business or not, even if you're a manufacturing company, your business is entirely run on software. So you have to start treating your business as if it's a platform and then it's integrating in with all these other constituent tools 
Um, and that's how you that you build a stack uh, at the end of the day. And if and if people are really interested in like how do you build a stack, what is the most thing in stack? I would recommend getting a copy of my book. Um, I wrote a book a year ago called Build Cool Shit. It's a blueprint to creating a marketing technology stack. It's a really short read. It's only about 120 pages. Comes with colored pictures because I know executives don't have uh, time to figure things out and they don't want to see grainy pictures. Um, anybody can get a free copy of my book. Um, all they have to do, you know, actually this would be fun for your listeners. If you pull out your cell phone um, and you go to your text messages, what you're going to do is you're going to text this number um, and you'll be able to get a free copy of my book. You'll experience what a, what a world-class tech stack is like because we have a text bot uh, built into our system. The phone number is 415-915-9011. I'll say it again. It's 415-915-9011. And then if you text the word MarTech, M-A-R-T-E-C-H, Take your time because if you're on an iPhone or an Android, it's going to spell check you and try to change the word to Mar and then Tech. But you have to text MarTech, M-A-R-T-E-C-H, all is one word. And it'll walk you through a text bot to collect your address, your information, and all that stuff to ship you a free copy of the book. Um, so that will get you to experience what a world-class tech stack is. And once you get my book, you'll know exactly how to build a stack uh, for good. Now... I'm a nerd when it comes to MarTech and I love it. So my next follow-up question would be with this tech spot, is it Twilio? Is it Sakari? Is it an alternative? Good questions. Uh, definitely Twilio. I'm a nice. big stockholder in Twilio as well. I'm a big I fan. Love so, you know, we use autopilot uh, for our um, marketing automation. So, you know, they don't actually offer the product anymore. It's autopilot journeys. You can still find it if you know how to find it, but they kind of uh, are building a new automation product uh, and autopilot journeys. We built in with Twilio. They have a text bot in autopilot. We integrated in with Twilio. Um, so you can text the word to a number. It notifies that and then kicks off a sequence. It will then reply back. It has certain words it's looking for that it will save into certain fields in our CRM. So autopilot saves all the data directly integrated in with Salesforce, directly integrated with ShipStation, which is our fulfillment provider. Um, so it all works quite, quite easily. But yeah, Twilio autopilot is how we do it. What are some ways that marketers can cut costs when building a MarTech stack? Yeah, really, really good question. Uh, don't use HubSpot. That would be the first thing I would say. Don't use HubSpot. Uh, sorry, HubSpot that's a is controversial. That's a controversial <laughs> statement because a lot of people love to use HubSpot. Yeah, a lot of people don't know what they're doing either. Uh, I mean, HubSpot is ridiculously expensive. Um, I, I think it's overpriced in many cases. Uh, it does do a good job. I, I will totally agree. But if you are trying to cut costs, I just would say don't use HubSpot. HubSpot's aggressively expensive. Um, and it, it just it isn't that great of a product. Um, you know, Salesforce has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Their CRM is getting really, really cost effective. So I think Salesforce is definitely a good bet. Don't get me wrong. HubSpot is easy to use. Uh, they are cheaper on the sales side. But the marketing automation for HubSpot can get extremely, extremely pricey for no good reason. Um, there's other products out there. Once again, I talked about Autopilot. Um, Active Campaign is another pretty good contender. Um, you have companies like Customer.io, um, Klaviyo, things like that, that can save you a lot of money over what HubSpot does. But really, you know, that's not going to be what saves you a ton of money, right? HubSpot's expensive, but that's not going to be what saves you the money. One, if you really want to save money in your marketing technology, you need to know what you're spending on. And I see, a, you know, uh, the average company spends 25% of their marketing budget on, on technology. They spend 24% of their budget on advertising. So we spend more on technology than we do on advertising, uh, which is quite shocking. But most companies don't even know uh, what tools they have installed, where their money is going all the time. Like, don't get me wrong, the CFP 
CFO does, but the marketing leader usually does not. So if you were to go to my website, magal.io, so M-C-G-A-W.io, scroll halfway down the page, you'll see this stack builder on there. All you have to do is go to that stack builder. You can type in your domain. Uh, it's a completely free tool. Type in the domain and it will automatically pull in all the tools which are installed on your website and enable you to actually diagram uh, your tech stack on the, th- on, on the page. You can build a diagram, but it also then tells you how much money you're probably spending on technology and you can track your tech spend, who's responsible for it using that tool. Um, and you don't have to use us, right? Build a spreadsheet. I don't care. Um, but you need to start analyzing what tools are we actually using? What tools are we paying for that we're not using anymore? And you need to be a lot more conscious about turning things on when you're not, or turning things off when you're not using them and turning them on when you are using them. As an example, our site, we only use Hotjar once every couple of months, right? We don't use it all the time. We're not running heat maps all day long. So we turn it on for the time that we're using it. And we turn it off when we're not using it. Um, and that's a really easy thing to do in many cases to cut costs is to only pay for a tool when you're using it. Because uh, a lot of companies will pay for a subscription for a year when they use the tool maybe three times a year. Uh, and that's just an ineffective way to do that. And then you also want to get rid of any kind of duplicate tools. Like you don't need Drift and live chat, right? Like there's a lot of overlap there. Um, You don't need intercom and drift in many cases, right? So there's a lot of overlap there. So you can definitely reduce tools. You just don't want to have a lot of duplicates. I can suspect that in the future, there will be a lot of B2B SaaS founders who are going to be angry at you because you're finding a new way to cut costs. And it's very simple. For the listeners specifically, I don't want to overwhelm them. So I will ask one more question about MarTech before we move forward, which is, what are the categories of MarTech tools that marketers should know about? Oh my God. There's so, I mean, that's the problem right now is that there's so many categories and Mm -hmm. everybody's creating new categories. There's the book called play bigger, which talks about category creation. So categories, you know, everybody's created one like drift is conversational marketing. That's their category, right? So revenue intelligence is another company's category, right? So product intelligence is another, that's the hard part. When I think about what, what should you pay attention to, right? One, you should probably ignore most of it. 99% of the shit you hear out there is complete garbage and it's just a distraction, right? It's like, it's like watching uh, the news. 99% of it, you don't need to know. And you probably don't want to know. And if you get rid of it, you are probably going to live a healthier and happier life. That's how I feel about most categories and most things inside of marketing technology is that 99% of it doesn't matter. Um, that being said, what what are the things which are going to become really, really popular that you do uh, want to do? Data governance is not a category in its own right, but it is. Data governance is one of the fastest growing categories in marketing right now and in analytics in general because everybody tried to roll out artificial intelligence and machine learning over the last five, 10 years. And they all realized, oh man, my data sucks. So it doesn't matter what you put. If you have bad data, artificial intelligence and machine learning can't do anything because the data is bad. So everybody now is focused on data governance. How do I make sure that my data is clean? How do I make sure that my data is accurate? And that's one reason why our product UTM.io sees so much success because it's a data governance product. So you really need to focus on your data governance because bad data in means bad data out. Um, if you ever want to use artificial intelligence or machine learning, you won't be able to because you have bad data. So I think data governance is a really, really important one. And then if you can get your data clean, hell yeah, do some AI, do some machine learning, uh, do some data science. I think those are the next really big things that, that are going to kind of pop up. But a lot of companies are held back on doing that just because they have such bad data. Um, so data governance, I think, is a big one. When you're thinking about resources and people to follow, who are those experts and resources in regards to data governance that you use? 
Mm, really good question. You know, I don't, one, I would say ourselves. So Magal.io, we talk a lot about clean data and building the right taxonomy. Um, I think Segment, uh, which is a large customer data platform company, a CDB company, they have an amazing content over there that talks a lot about clean data. I wouldn't say there's like a figurehead or anything like that for data governance per se. Um, there's definitely like a lot of people in marketing operations who talk about it. Uh, the one guy, I think his name is Daryl. He's from Amazon. I see him on LinkedIn all the time. He's like the global marketing operations lead there. Uh, does some good stuff. Daniel Murray, who is with Service Titan, he's as well as on LinkedIn. He runs the Marketing Millennials podcast. Um, but, you know, there's no real figurehead for data governance. Um I can't think of anybody that I would say is like a big advocate there. I mean, I, of course, am. Most analytics people are. Uh, but there's not like somebody I can point my finger at and say he's the uh, influencer. Got it. Five more questions. Next question is, in terms of UTMs, can you describe what they are to our listeners and why are they so important and vital to a marketer's success? Yeah, I mean, uh, UTMs are the oldest and uh, most innovative way to track how somebody gets to your website. They've been around since the early 2000s. UTM stands for Urchin Tracking Module. And Google Analytics was actually purchased by Google. It used to be called Urchin, uh, just like an urchin you have to see with this little uh, prickly sticking out everywhere. But Urchin had come up with these uh, parameters that you would add to the end of a URL. So let's just say that your website is um, apple.com. Well, when you, Apple puts a post out on Facebook and somebody clicks on that, you know, we can see that the person came from Facebook because of the referrer. However, we don't know what campaign that was. We don't know whether it was a Facebook post or a Facebook ad. Um, so you add these UTM parameters to the end of the URL. So that way you have a campaign source. So Facebook, you have a medium, which could be PPC or it could be organic social. Uh, and then you also have a campaign name. So it could be like uh, iPhone 13 is released, right? So these UTM parameters are what you add to the end of the URL. So that way you have context as to where the person came from. And you commonly see these used in email or social media, PPC. Anytime you're running paid uh, advertising, you always see UTM codes being used. But the whole goal is to make it so that in Google Analytics or whatever analytics platform you have, you know why or how somebody converted. You know what campaign was causing you to generate revenue and how all that worked. Um, and the one thing that's really, really important to know about UTMs is that the only tracking method which is universally known by everybody. Um, so your marketing automation tool, your CRM, uh, your analytics, every product out there respects UTMs. So everybody uses them, even Apple. So as an example, in Apple's app store, when you send somebody to your Apple store uh, listing and you have UTMs on it, Apple tracks that and stores that in your developer account. So um, UTMs are the only thing that are used by everybody. Um, so really, really popular tool. I mean, if you don't know what a UTM is and you're in digital marketing, you can't, you can't work at most companies, right? Because you're not really in digital marketing. We'll put it that way. That right there is definitely going to be a clip. Next question, is Google Data Studio a tool to add to your stack? And is it necessary for all businesses? Yeah, Google Data Studio is a really, really cool product. You know, I don't think it's necessary for all businesses, but I definitely think it's a really, really nice, nice to have and a great benefit. You know, Google Analytics is an amazing product, but it's not very um, moldable, right? Like it's extremely, extremely cool and does a lot of things, but it doesn't provide the best visualizations. So Google Data Studio enables you to do that. 
But another important part about Data Studio is that, you know, it's kind of in, in our perspective, it's the poor man's business intelligence tool. You can build dashboards, you can build reports, it can pull in data from Google Analytics, but it can also pull in data from many, many other sources. Not to mention if you have data in BigQuery, or if you have data in a uh, data warehouse or data in a spreadsheet, Google Data Studio can give you visualizations of that data. Um, you know, we use Google Data Studio. Um, we have a internally with all of our projects, you know, we're using time tracking to track our budgets and our projects. Um, all that data is pulled out of Harvest using Stitch. We throw it into BigQuery. We then have Google Data Studio sitting on top of that BigQuery warehouse. Uh, and Data Studio is the dashboard that my team uses to know how good are we doing profitability wise on every one of our projects. So while I don't think it is a requirement, I definitely think it is really, really helpful. Um, and it's free compared to other dashboarding products like grow.com or uh, Clipfolio or many of the other ones. So I think it is definitely something companies should leverage. Um, if you can't figure it out, hire somebody at Upwork, right? If you want to do badass stuff with it, call me, right? But you can find an Upwork freelancer to build anything you want in Data Studio for a few hundred bucks. Um, and if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So um, start being a manager. If you could mold the ideal marketer, what skills would you want them to have and what experiences would you give them to set a nice foundation? <laughs> this is a great question. So really, really good one. So I'll tell you my, my, uh, where I think we get the best types of marketers. So we, uh, we do, I mean, we, uh, process uh, about 5,000 applications per month, and then we hire about one person per month, right? So as you might understand, we see a ton of marketers, but we're super, super picky. I mean, we're hiring way above the top 1%. We're hiring the 0.001% of people. Um, you know, the best marketers that we really have an opportunity to experience in, uh, one, when they were in high school, um, they were working in a restaurant or in retail. Um, retail and the hospitality industry, restaurants, hotels, things like that, enable you to better understand people. Um, you really learn a lot about psychology when you're working in those environments and you learn how to adapt towards people. And at the end of the day, marketing is of course, people. It's the psychology of people, but it's also the sales of people. I don't think enough marketers um, know how important it is to have some sales background. And if you've worked in a restaurant as a server or a bartender, or if you've worked in retail as a sales associate, you're selling at the end of the day. You're one-on-one -on -one with a customer. And I think that's an extremely, extremely good foundation for anybody to really understand people um, in that type of environment, because that's what marketers do, right? You're constantly trying to get net new. And that's what you do as a server is you got a new customer, you got to sell them, you got to be able to do this. So I think that's a really, really good foundation. However, the next part is, is that one, we always are looking for people who skew towards technology. So are they able to understand HTML? Are they able to understand CSS or JavaScript? So people who have played around building websites, things like that are always going to be really, really good because uh, they know. The future of marketing is technology. So you have to be technical. The next thing that we always try to look for is somebody been in a finance position. Have they worked at a finance company, a venture capitalist, a Bank of America? I don't care. Have they been a financial analyst in any capacity? If you have the ability to understand revenue and numbers, which most marketers don't, I will tell you this, 95% of marketers barely know how to use Excel, right? They know a couple formulas. But if you have somebody who came from the finance industry and is now in marketing, they kill it because they understand the math on how to make money. So somebody who has done finance in their life is also somebody really, really good. So, you know, maybe they have an MBA, maybe they've worked at Charles Schwab, 
you know, there's a lot of different ways to get into that financial uh, analyst or come from that, but you've got to really be good with numbers. Uh, that's a really, really big part of it. And then the last thing that I'll say that we we really uh, pay attention to, if somebody has worked at an agency and done consulting for more than two years, they are way more valuable in many cases at a company um, than somebody who has only worked SaaS. And the reason why is because agencies are so effing hard compared to working at a SaaS business. In a SaaS business, there's a standard operating procedure. Everything is pretty linear. It's the reason why I, I love my SaaS companies because it's so much easier to hire for. But in consulting, it's so much harder because you, your job is to turn gray into either black or white, and you've got to juggle a lot of things. So if you have that agency experience, you're able to handle the chaos and the shit that comes along with it. So those are some of the things that we look for when we're trying to hire people, um, just because we have found that to be a really, really good mold for us. Um, but, you know, every company is a unique snowflake. So what I am looking for, while they may work at my company or many of my clients' companies, um, you don't have to find that stuff if you're hiring somebody for a marketer of a, a local coffee shop, right? Like every, every profile is going to be different. The listeners can't see that I'm smiling right now, but I'm just going to recap everything you said by just checking <laughs> off a list of myself, which is one, my mom was an accountant, so she taught me Excel and I currently work at a fintech startup. So that's pretty convenient. Two, I used to work there at Macy's go. selling watches. So I fit that retail checklist. And then I've also started my own website for this podcast and I worked at VaynerMedia. So I think it's just really funny coincidence that those four things were on your list. Sounds like you're coming to apply for a position here at Magad.io soon, huh? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. My next question, <laughs> on, on the same vein of skills, I want to talk to you about your own skills, right? What are some hard and soft skills that you've leveraged throughout your career? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think the soft skills, I mean, naturally, uh, my soft skills are some of the things that that have pushed me through, you know, I grew up really, really poor, but also went to the most expensive prep school in our city. So growing up in the dichotomy of like, when I went home, I was on food stamps. But when I went to school, like these kids, parents drove Rolls Royces, right? Um, was it definitely an interesting way to grow up. But um, that the soft skill that I learned out of that is that I have to really work my ass off if I want to get anything right. And I made a conscious decision as a child that I want to be a have not a have not. So, you know, my my soft skill of not being afraid of failure, always willing to just go out there and do something and always being able to be direct um, has really, really helped me in my career. And don't get me wrong, it's also hindered me. My direct um, personality and my willing to just be candid with anybody and be have candor and be like negative about it too uh, has has helped me. But it has also hindered me. I have I, don't, I wouldn't say I have enemies because of my my ability to provide quality feedback, but I definitely have people that don't want feedback from me, um, and that's okay, right? If you don't want to hear the truth, don't ask questions. Um, so, you know, I think my candid nature and my direct nature and my energy, my soft skills, and that has definitely paid off a lot over my career. You know, I think the next soft skill that I would say that has really paid off for me is I've, I've, I've really worked it myself. Uh, you know, I'm constantly learning. I mean, I read over 40 books last year, this year, I've already read 25 books. So like I'm a voracious reader, but a big soft skill that I really have focused on over the past five or 10 years is negotiations. How do you effectively communicate with somebody to get what you want while making them feel like they got everything they wanted? So negotiations is really, really big. Um, and I think if you get better at negotiating early in life, you can get whatever you want. Um, and I get whatever I want now uh, because I've gotten so good at negotiating. 
from a hard skills perspective, um, very luckily, I grew up on a computer. So I was typing MS-DOS by the time I was five uh, because I wanted to play games on my mom's uh, IBM computer. Um, so I'm very, very technical. So I don't know how to code, but I have coded HTML and CSS and the websites. I have written some JavaScript. I was never a developer, but I was technical enough to be able to fake it until I made it. And I was also technical enough to understand how things work. Um, I was very fortunate. Um, about 10 years ago, I became the head of growth at a company called CodeSchool.com. CodeSchool was a pioneer in online education for developers. Uh, I became extremely technical there. Like I know how the internet actually works. It's not just something in the cloud. Like I know how it's all set up. Um, that technical skill and those are technical abilities, I think, is uh, one of the reasons why I've been so successful in my career. Um, coming from that, uh, I had to learn how to sell background as a kid to now being very, very technical. Um, I'm, in, I'm very luckily in a very unique spot in my career. So I think that those would be some of the main things that have kind of put me where I'm at. Final question. And this one is hypothetical because time machines don't exist. But if they did. They do. They do. When you have six tequilas and four Coronas, true. you will time travel. Trust me. I've done so, it a couple times. So let's let's <laughs> let's picture this. Right. You've had your tequila. You've had your Coronas and you're thinking about the past. <laughs> if you if you can tell your past self, let's say a decade ago, here are the things you need to do to get to where I am right now, just faster, what would those things be? First thing I would tell myself to shut the fuck up. That would be the first thing, hands down. And I say that all the time. You know, a failure that we make when we're young, especially when we have uh, exuberance and as well as a, 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 an ego, um, ego is the enemy. It's a great book by Ryan Holiday. Um, I would I would tell myself 10 years ago to shut the fuck up. Um, I did too much talking, not enough listening, or not enough listening. Um, and I should I should have listened more. I should have asked better questions. I should have been more prepared to be empathetic and respectful and listening. But I think 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, I just I just talk too much and I, I steamroll everybody. I still steamroll a lot of people now. Um, so I think the first advice I would give myself is shut the fuck up. The second bit of advice I'd probably give myself is save more money. Um, I wish I would have saved more earlier. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I, I save at least 10% of everything I make in all of my companies and as well as personally now, but I probably could have been better about that 10 years ago uh, is saving. Um, and I, I wish I probably would have, um, you know, I got into reading 10 years ago, pretty hardcore. I would say 15, 20 years ago, I wish I would have done a lot more reading. Um, but the, I, shut the fuck up, be the biggest advice I give myself. And with that, I think that's the perfect end to this podcast. Dan, if anyone wanted to say hello, where can they find you online? Yeah, you know, the best place to find me on online is LinkedIn. Just look up Dan McGon on LinkedIn. You'll, you'll see my pretty face there. I'm most active on that network, always looking to hang out. If you're really looking to learn more about MarTech, definitely get a free copy of my book through the text thing I said earlier. But just go to maga.io, um, our website, or Google Maga, and you'll find us. Um, we have everything that I, I do for work is free on our website. So if you went to our resources section, you can find everything that I do, and I'll train you how to do it for free. Uh, so check out the website. Thank you, Dan, for your time today. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening to another episode of The People of Digital Marketing with your host, Kenny Soto. And as always, I hope you have a great week. And with that, bye. Hey, thanks again for listening to this podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to submit a rating and leave a review on your podcasting app. Reviews like this help to grow this podcast and get it to more people like yourself, people who want to grow in their marketing careers. If you want to say hello, you can find me on any social media platform by simply searching Kenny Soto. I look forward to hearing from you soon, and as always, let's keep growing together.